This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for being here. This morning's session is a panel session on Behind the Rescue, Sex Work, Migration, and the Anti-Trafficking Industry. In March 2021, as we all know, a white man killed eight people in a shooting spree across three massage businesses outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Six of those who were killed were migrant Asian women who worked in those massage businesses. Organizations like Butterfly and Canary Song, who are with here with us today, you're going to be hearing from, formed a critical response to, within, and in some cases against the Stop Asian Hate Discourse, and articulated how this horrific act of violence and massacre is connected to the foundational history of the United States, including sexual violence as a tool of anti-Asian racism, imperialism, and control of working class migrant sex workers. Canary Song at the time wrote, quote, this massacre exists in a sea of continued highly publicized anti-Asian attacks during the COVID-19 pandemic, but it should not be collapsed or simplified to fit into the mainstream narratives around anti-Asian violence. These women who were killed face specific racialized and gendered violence for being Asian migrant women and massage workers. Whether or not they ever provided sexual services, we know that as massage workers, they were subjected to sexualized violence, stemming from the hatred of sex workers, Asian women, working class people, and immigrants. Every facet of their identities informs the violence they and other migrant Asian women were and are subjected to. While we do see these killings, Sorry. <laughs> While we do see these killings as racially motivated and gender-based, we disagree with the call for more hate crime sentencing as a solution for violence against Asian women and communities. While Asian people face racialized labor exploitation, rampant workplace abuse, criminalization within the workplace, targeted sexual violence, routine refusal of language access, immigration detention and deportation, and xenophobic media attacks domestically, The United States wages military occupation, military sexual violence in host nations, environmental destruction, and extractive and coercive trade economic policies abroad in countries across Asia. It is from this context that every form of violence against Asian people in the United States springs forth, both the insidious and quotidian, as well as the extreme and hyper-visible, end quote. So that was from Canary Song. I invite all of us to engage with this session by deeply thinking about this, and about how migrant sex workers are the spear of so many struggles. The spear of feminist class struggle and of labor rights movements, fighting against police, prison, and border expansion and controls, especially forms of state violence enacted in the name of carceral feminism or white savior rescue politics, and also teaching us about overlapping systems of criminalization, including the criminalization and regulation of sex work, the criminalization and precarity of gender labor, and the criminalization and illegalization of migration. So this is going to be a brilliant, passionate conversation between three abolitionist migrant sex worker organizations and organizers 
with a focus on how the state, law enforcement, and NGOs formed and benefited from an anti-migrant, carceral, anti-human trafficking industry that exploits and harms sex workers, people of color, and migrants. I'm thrilled to introduce you to first, Elaine Lamb, who is, has a degree as a social worker and a master's of law, is that right? Yes. <laughs> is an activist, a community organizer, an educator, and human rights defender. She's the founder of Butterfly Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network, has been involved in migrant sex workers, labor, gender, and racial justice movements for over 20 years. She's a PhD candidate at McMaster University School of Social Work and studying the harm of the anti-trafficking movement. Chanel has over 20 years of experience as an organizer, a writer, a strategist in movements for sex worker rights and racial justice. She's on the board of Showing Up for Racial Justice, Surge, and writes about abolitionist approaches to criminalization and sex work. Most recently in Beyond Survival, Pleasure Activism, and Disarm, Defund, Dismantle, Police Abolition in Canada. With Ellen, she's co-authoring a forthcoming book on sex work, migration, and the politics of the anti-trafficking industry for Haymarket Books. And Eve, who uses the pronouns they and she, is joining us here virtually, is a queer and disabled Viet cultural worker and sex worker whose organizing home is with Survived and Punished New York and Red Canary Song. Eve is personally concerned with supporting survivors of all forms of violence through organizing and informal community support. Red Canary Song, a grassroots collective based in Queens, in New York, on unceded Nilafe land, is of Asian, of Asian and migrant massage workers and sex workers, centering base building with migrant workers through a labor rights framework and mutual aid. I'm going to turn the floor over to Elaine, Eve, and Chanel. They're going to be speaking for about 15 minutes each, 45 minutes, and then we're going to move into discussion. Can we give them a warm welcome before they start? Hi, everyone. can build our collective power because often when we go to the talk and you know sharing the people will ask what we can do with the poor victim how we can rescue them I can feel the energy is totally different but I think why we want to have this panel because as Hasha just said after the Atlanta shooting we thought there would be more support for sex worker particular Asian and migrant sex worker so the concern of anti-Asian racism, uh, we thought, we think that that will be called for more against the policing and criminalization because this is, we know that this is the root of why sex worker, massage worker, particular Asian and migrant is being targeted. Of course, the moralistic view of sex work is, of course, is a huge reason. But unfortunately, what happened is we see so many people as Hasha said, using anti-Asian hate to call for more policing. The anti-trafficking organization, actually they are anti-sex work organization, pro-policing, pro-criminalization organization. They are the candy poison, you know, that they use anti-trafficking to cover the real agenda. They want to kill this industry. And we keep saying when they want to kill this industry is no different when the murder want to kill this woman. So that we have so many fights and three months after the Atlanta shooting, we really hope that the policymaker will listen to see the harm of criminalization. So one of the small towns is called Newmarket in Toronto, three months after the Atlanta shooting. They passed the bylaw to shut down all the Asian massage parlor in the name of anti-trafficking. 
But the mayor and council is very clear the purpose is want to get rid of the sex work. And they say it doesn't matter the woman they cannot work in massage parlor because in the meeting there are anti-trafficking organizations they say, oh, this woman cannot speak English. How they can consent? I'm sure they are bought from the plane to go to brothel to work immediately. Despite we have worker in the meeting say, this is my work. I want to continue my work. I am not traffic victim, but they don't listen. And one of the counselors say, it doesn't matter. You can go to our senior home to serve our people. So this is a hundred slavery, slavery mentality that I only allow you to come to my space as a slaver, as a, a, a slave that used by us. So I think this is the the one of the examples the struggle. Toronto a few years ago they also want to shut down all the massage parlor in the name of human trafficking. But why we want to be here? Because we are so surprised, despite so many anti-policing movement, abolitionist uh, movement. When we call for the support, there are organizations in individual, they are against policing, but they still support the policing in the name of anti-human trafficking. One of the examples is the Ontario government tried to, not try, they passed the laws, it's called Bill 251 that give the unlimited power to law enforcement. I can't can imagine Canada then can pass the law. The law enforcement can go to any place, ask any question, and take any document without any warrant or court order. But the politician is supporting it. Those organizations, they claim they are anti-trafficking. Uh, of course, they support it. But those are claim themselves anti-policing, anti-prison, they are still supporting. So that's why we think this is a very important platform. We try to share with you more about our experience and what we see, what we face, and also having your um, contribution on how we can build stronger movement to stop the harm of anti-trafficking. One other example is I was invited to be a, a panelist. And so the other organizations is uh, Asian Families Organization, is it called FAM? Like, yeah, so, but whatever. But then they are very clear agenda of anti-sex work. But the in organizers think we are doing the same thing. We are not doing the same thing. We are liberating the people by recognizing the work of people. We are liberating the people to, to, to break the prison system, break the policing system. We are not calling more policing and prison in our life. Thank you. Yeah. super exciting to be here. It's so nice. I haven't been in this kind of gathering in years, um, and I'm just feeling so right. There's nothing that replaces this, um, and I also just feel incredibly honored to be with such badasses, for me to be in these rooms full of like organizers and movement intellectuals who are connected to movements. Like I could fucking cry. I'm speaking at the same conference as some of these people. What, what have I done right in my life? Um, so thank you so much for that introduction, Harsha. Okay, I should move on to what I want to talk about, but I just needed to express that. I've had it kind of just building in me. Um, 
So yeah, my name is Chanel Galan. I've been organizing the sex workers' rights movement since um, 2004 and working with Elaine since I think like around 2013, 2014. Um, and my work really focuses on the overlap uh, between racial justice and sex workers' rights, and especially around migrant um, justice. And a lot of my work, I feel like, has like one foot in uh, abolitionist feminism and in migrant justice and sex workers' rights, and so also, um, you know, has been so influenced by uh, Parsha's thinking. So, okay, there's just, I, uh, what I want to talk a little bit about is like why we want to talk to you in particular and why I was like, okay, yeah, let's go to this thing, which is that we really want to talk to the fact that leftists, progressives, and feminists don't understand what the anti-trafficking industry is and inadvertently support it or passively let it happen. So I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. Great. There are a lot. Of, there are more folks who understand or kind of look at it. You know, I get a lot of calls from progressives who are like, something feels wrong about this. And I'm like, who? Oh, yeah. And you know, and they'll be like, I got this report, and it's an anti-trafficking report, and I can read. I can just scroll down to the bottom and be like, this was funded by the police. Did you notice that? All the statistics in here are from the FBI, but that's in the footnotes. It's buried, right? Because um, the anti-trafficking industry really hides what it is so that it can recruit leftists, and that's what it was designed to do. It was designed to be a way that right-wing forces in the U.S. could recruit the uh, support of those who were liberal, at least, liberal and progressive. It's been designed to do that, and so most anti-trafficking organizations, many of them, use the language of social justice. All of them, actually. They use the language of <clears throat> you know, liberation, freedom, gender-based violence. Um, they'll have images on the front always of like women of color and leadership, and, and they identify as abolitionists. Because in the late 19th century, um, the white ruling class decided conveniently for them to redefine slavery as sex work in a way that completely absented white people's role in it as perpetrators of slavery and turned them into the liberators, both the victims and the liberators. Um, and it's alarming. And so what we find is that a lot of the left actually doesn't know this. So recently we were interviewed on a podcast by someone who said, uh, asked me a question about whether the concept of abolition could be appropriated and whether it was kind of co-optation free. And I was like, oh, right. It reminded me that one of the impetus for writing this book is I was like, oh, y'all don't know. White women are on this. They co-opted this 150 years ago. And the two movements don't really seem to know much about each other. Um, but you know, the anti-trafficking industry uh, was first born in the 19th century as a way to redefine slavery, like I, I discussed, so that it could be criminalized. And then the um, perpetrators of, of slavery became, uh, at that time, uh, it was basically any migrants, but especially Asian migrants. And that's what led to the Page Law, which was the first uh, federal anti-immigration ban in the US. Um, and then it was reborn in the 19, I mean, white feminists started to revive the concept in the 70s. And then in the late 90s, Republican strategists intentionally revived the concept of human trafficking so that they could redefine it as 
sex work and migration in order to bring about, uh, intensify the criminalization of sex work and bring about border control, like uh, tighten and militarize the border. Um, and so a, a lot of folks who are supportive of sex workers think there's two different things going on. There's we need to decriminalize sex work, and everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense, right? And then there's like, yeah, but we need these human trafficking laws. And what they don't know is that all human trafficking laws, measures, initiatives, literally almost all of them are designed to criminalize sex work. And they do this in the name of abolition. So the, the, in the US, I want to just give you an example that is for, for so pointed and frustrating, which is that in the US, the anti-trafficking law is called the Frederick Douglass Trafficking Victims Prevention and Protection Act. Y'all know who Frederick, Frederick Douglass is, right? Okay, so real abolitionists. And I'm gonna read you a quote from that act. This is the direct language. Sex trafficking, the term sex trafficking means the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, obtaining, patronizing, or soliciting of a person for the purpose of a commercial sex act, period, end quote. There's no mention of force. There's no mention of violence. There's no mention of coercion. It's not required. They criminalize sex work as an act of slavery in a bill called the Frederick Douglass Trafficking Victims Act. It's such a profound perversion in the bad way. You know what I mean? Like we call it a co-optation, but it, I think of it actually as such a sick zombie bill that actually turns uh, criminalization into fake abolition. And, and so that's why we felt this urgency because we don't hear the left talking about the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars are going into policing and into border control measures because they just call them anti-trafficking measures. And then we don't see, we don't see anti-policing, anti-criminalization and um, you know, migrant justice movements rising up and saying, this is a Trojan horse, this is fake, y'all are lying to us. These anti-trafficking organizations are like, they're like the fake pregnancy crisis centers. They're not real. They don't provide services to people who are experiencing human trafficking. Um, you know, and we can go deeper and get more meta about what human trafficking actually looks like, but my, my very short version of it is that we ha it never went away. It exists that in the migrant labor sector and that human trafficking laws actually produce human trafficking. Um, and I want to, I'm just going to finish by quoting from a piece by Robin Maynard, who is here. Thank you, Robin. And also super excited to say that um, Robin and Harsha are also contributing to the book that we're writing with a forward and afterward, which we're very excited and honored about. Um, and Robin has written a lot about this particular intersection of the co-optation and whitewashing of abolition in the name of the criminalization of sex work. Um, and I kind of just wanted to quote everything, you know, it's one of those pieces where I'm like, um, so I really, I felt so moved by this when I was rereading the piece. Abolition belongs not only to black history, but to contemporary black-led struggles against incarceration and policing. Though abolition has been appropriated, I do not intend to easily surrender the legacy of black slavery and abolition to those who would abuse it. Co-opting the horrors of black slavery in order to push for increased policing of women's, and often black, uh, and cis and trans women's workspaces and bodies is dangerously misinformed. 
The harms wreaked on black women's bodies by hundreds of years of racist policing and imprisonment stand for themselves. The legacy of abolition of slavery belongs to those who are still living and dying in its wake. There is no room for an abolitionism that organizes for more and not less law enforcement in a context in which hundreds of thousands of black lives have been lost to law enforcement or vigilantes in the United States and Canada in recent decades. It is only in allying ourselves to end the state's war on black women, including trans and black women and black sex working women, for an end to black suffering can we truly deign to call ourselves abolitionists. To fight the modern legacy of slavery, we must be a part of fighting and not contributing to black suffering. Um, and I wanted to, and, and so in our work, what we're, we're really trying to do is to bring those together, to look, to confront the fake abolition, and then to map out a way forward that does not rely on suffering, black suffering through the prison industrial complex, and we're here to try to build support for that.
for example, and I bring this up all the time, is as we're looking at things like Roe v. Wade being repealed and other people's rights being repealed, and we're seeing like a rising tide of fascism now in modern day, it started with sex workers. It started by peeling away the rights that sex workers have via the anti-trafficking movement here in the U.S. under the guise of protecting women, under the guise of protecting children. There's a lot of legislation that has been passed in the past decade, SESTA, FOSTA, and other acts that are meant that claim their language talks about protecting children and protecting women um, and like trying to stop like child exploitation material. But actually, what it is is it tries to repeal away your privacy rights, which directly leads into the exact types of things that happened when they repealed Roe v. Wade and will continue to happen. But people will gladly give away all of those rights and are okay with stripping away those rights when they are sex workers, when they are migrant workers, and other people. And I really, you know, I don't want to take up too much time because we still have like a lot to talk about in Q&A, but and Hersha talks about this in their work, wherein for us, the reason why we support like the decriminalization of sex work and liberating people and honoring the way in which they survive is because we have a clear understanding as to how all of these systems come to play like together and that the ways in which like colonization work and the ways in which people become dispossessed from their communities, from their resources, and all these things leads people to engaging in informal labor and criminalized labor, which further criminalizes them, right? They're already criminalized, they're already like criminalized as being migrants, and then you're also criminalized for the type of labor that you do and how you are able to survive under these contexts in which you are like dispossessed from your land, you're expected to migrate to find work, or like there are just other things. Right? As previously noted, I'm disabled. A lot of disabled people are sex workers. A lot of marginalized people are sex workers because that is what happens under these contexts in which people do informal labor. And the only way in which you free people is not by policing them or telling them that the way that they survive is wrong. Right? But that is what the anti-trafficking movement will have you say. It also coalesces with other movements and other types of work, such as like the work against um, gender-based violence. A lot of groups in gender-based violence who are trying to stop gender-based violence actually perpetuate gender-based violence by being carceral feminists, by pushing for more policing, for pushing for prisons, in which we end up policing the very people we claim to protect. Which Chanel says this at the end of what she has to say, that the laws against human trafficking perpetuate more human trafficking because you are forcing people to engage in more underground and informal labor. And in the same way with gender-based violence, that when you are policing people, you're perpetuating more violence, you're perpetuating more sexual violence, more gender-based violence towards people, because that is just what the police do. But other groups would have you say that. And also a lot of groups will claim, again, that they are abolitionists, that they are against the police nowadays, right? But you see in the fine print, in the text of what they actually do, what they actually say, what they actually support, that they support more police funding, that they support more border control, that they support all of these things, in the name of doing these things. And this includes people who would position themselves as socialists, as communists, as all of these things. And that's why we think that's really important to push against that. And again, in the context of the US, where we see like a new wave of fascism, or not a new wave, but like, you know, fascism rising up in these laws and repeals of things that people have worked for for decades, and that, you know, people have saw coming, is that people will happily sign it away dependent upon which communities they are. And we know which communities those are.
Are you all buzzing from that? Yes. All right, so we're going to move into discussion. This is you speaking. I mean, if you, like, if we want to start with the conversation of consent in sex work, does anybody consent to working? Like, right now? Um, if you, like, if you're working under capitalism, if you're working under white supremacy, imperialism, and all of these things, is any of us consenting to work if we have to work to survive? And so this is what I said when I meant that we have to support people in the ways in which they survive. There is no way at looking at trying to get rid of sex work, right, um, and trying to abolish sex work or like the sex trade industry under the current conditions that we have without harming people. That is just not possible. So I usually don't really like to weave through the conversation about the ethics of sex work because nobody wants to weave through the ethics of any other type of work in the same way. They, in fact, when people ask those questions, it's because the work is viewed through a lens that is racialized and gendered that you ask those questions again, right? Because people have this jump to like saviorism and especially under white supremacy, in which people are like, we've like formed the conditions for you to work under this, and now we're going to save you from it. Thank you, Eve, exactly. One little thing I want to add that I feel like just gets so downplayed, that like, remember, we live under capitalism. Yes, you're like, look, very oppressed, marginalized communities make up the sex industry. Guys, it's because they earn more. Yeah. I just want you to remember that, right? Yeah. The wages are significantly higher, full stop, right? The working conditions are often more body friendly for people who are disabled. The alternatives for sex workers are often retail work, domestic work, um, different form of factory work. My work is extremely inaccessible to a lot of people's bodies um, and extremely out of their control in terms of the shifts and the length of the shifts. So like, rather than being like, it's so weird and sad who's in sex work, you have to look at sex work and you have to look at them as kind of escapees from other forms of highly oppressed labor. And that's what we mean when we talk about, you know, Elaine talks about sex work as resistance, and people think that's like, they confuse it with the glamorization of sex work, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about it as resistance to extremely fucked up, oppressive working conditions for the most marginalized people, and that's why they're selling sex. And I think I want to talk about the client parts because I think how particularly anti-trafficking movement, anti-sex work movement, you know, they always have the image that sex work is very sad, you know, pushed by the like evil men like that. It's like no one is concerned with that, right? But sexuality is very complexity. So that like when we talk with many of our member, five member, of course some people don't like this job, but some people really see that they are like one of the most common that they why they like that job is actually they see the vulnerability of the men, that what they are serving, and particularly um, Asian and migrant sex workers, they are like um, struggling, but they are, are working with and working for and helping those even more vulnerable, that in the society they don't have family, you know, they don't have support system, and they can you know, provide the, the care, and that the care often is mutual. For example, when a um, client of um, one of our members was sick, she was the only one to visit him. And when she deported, he was the only one bringing her stuff to the airport and continues to support her back home. And I think this kind of story we do not see 
and also how sexuality is so complicated, liberating. Some people like it in certain ways, some people don't like it in certain way. And I think that is like the, the current discourse is not able, you know, to to to. And also when we talk about consent, it's very different of like sex work and also the working condition, right? That why people don't like sex work is many because of like just like what. Um, yeah, the folks have said, like the condition, the working condition is, of course, I don't want to consent of this kind of working condition. And the job itself, like other kind of jobs, some people like it, not like it. But then the assumption of people not consenting. And I think this is a very important question. This is what we face right in the bottom. We don't ask whether the security in the hotel they are consenting to do this work. Whether you do your activism, why you need to fill all the form and write the proposal, is it your consent? There's so many things, and, but then why is sex something we feel so uncomfortable? Um, well, currently, to my knowledge, there are not any groups doing outreach to Asian migrant massage workers in South Florida. Um, but prior to last year, or even two years ago, there were not many groups doing outreach to migrant Asian massage workers, period. So, um, but in the past year that has expanded and I, you know, if you have the capacity or other folks have the capacity and are interested, I would say that, you know, other sex worker groups in Florida could um, start organizing around that, could start trying to do that outreach, um, which there are groups in Florida for sure who are sex worker organizing groups. Um, and I would like advocate for making a connection with them and trying to do that work if you want to. And um, we are always open to like guiding people through that, which what I will say is the guidance is pretty much us like explaining what we do and then you can choose to adapt that to however it works within your community. So I think maybe I answered the question in the way integrated everything. I think when my experience like come to Canada and immediately People tell me like Asian American sex worker is a juicy issue. Many people are interested to jump in, but then how long is law last? And also like I think in my organizing, even your guys is amazing organizer. Anything before we do to how how we can support and benefit the community, we need to think about what harm we may also cause before we take any action. And I think the education to understand the intersectionality of multi different kind of oppression, particularly the legal oppression is really the huge issue. This is learned from my experience, you know, policing is not covered right, but then when you support the worker to advocate for that, that they may not, you know, being arrested because of that, but also whole community may be evicted by the landlord police. So, so that's, I think this is very important before starting anything to understand the complexity of people's life and also the different system people are facing. And we keep saying nothing about us without us. Like that's why I think what you say is like the base building is very important. But for the like people is facing so many oppression, the way of organizing may be very different. So for example, like people we see like more sex worker organization is really great. They they say I'm the white sex worker um, high class sex worker, then I would like to help the massage parlor and then what we see is like um, a lot of white lady, you know, give the flyer there and actually draw more attention that is and also the, the the advocacy work may also make the invisible survival 
working condition become visible. The visible is often being targeted, same as labor rights. We see so many organizations that advocate labor rights and health policy, you know, with the intention of improving the working environment, including massage parlors. But we should not forget all the law enforcement and also policy makers. The goal is to eliminate this industry, no matter what opportunity, human trafficking, improve working safety, even disability <laughs> guy that they, they want you to install an elevator immediately, you cannot run your business, right? So that I think this is very important. That's why the organizing need to base, have the base building and really listen and working uh, with the community and build the leadership that, that the community tell you what is the situation, what do they want, and, then, and I think this takes a long time. But I think this is also important. And how you can build more solidarity. So if there's a legal issue, what organization you can mobilize? If you, and in migrant organization and language and you know the help, you know, so many things come together and to support your work. And so so before to do that, which is also important to think about that how you build the foundation in order to do the work uh, and also what harm you, you may bring. And and so Butterfly actually have produced a lot of resources on, on our website and at the back. Mm -hmm. QR code. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and and one thing is like what how the people experience under this like multi oppression and also legal system. So that we call it castle way that they are criminalized by the criminal law, immigration law, municipal by law, family law, land law, you know, all this complicated thing and how people actually experience and how from that. So that and when you I know that academic like to give academic writing. So for example Kamana, you know, like and yeah, Elena and so I think how to, you know, bring the community resources to your class is also important. What is less academic some students enjoy more like me. so and the other thing is how to learn from like the life story and you know I think this is also very important part also our book yes <laughs> so we're writing a book which is why we're here for Haymarket um, which is tentatively titled behind the rescue but we might change it um, and we are going to include significant contributions that are first-person stories from from migrant sex workers which is super cool um, and then you know analysis and organizing um, stories um, and I also yeah for those who do teach I recommend checking out the work of Kamala Kempadu and Elena Shee and spelled S-H-I-H and they actually have a book coming out together which is called White Supremacy Racism and the Coloniality of Anti-Trafficking that is out in two weeks. Yeah, I think at the end we will, so actually why we have the QR code, because we really want to keep connected with you so that the QR code is a form, so please feel free to enter your information that we can share more information with you in the future. Did you want to add anything? I, oh, I mean like, I wanted to add a little bit about the question around strippers unionizing and like getting contractor rights. So. Um, I mean, this is like a dynamic that already exists within sex work, and to me, to note, right, like, I am a more privileged sex worker in certain ways, like, I am a U.S. citizen, I can, like, work legally, I can do things like, for example, I can do porn, I can, like, do OnlyFans, I can, all types of, like, different sex work, um, like that, um, but this is a conversation around, like, what like people's alignments are like class-wise race-wise like because in certain ways yes 
like a certain section of strippers or other workers who seek to unionize, who seek certain rights or legitimacy, do get protected. Like, that is true. But my personal goals as to the ends of sex work is that sex work is an informal type of labor, and I have no goals to try and make it more formal. I do not want sex work to be more recognized under the government. I don't want it to be more regulated. And this is the conversation around decriminalization. We don't really touch on this in anything that we've brought up, but you know, a lot of people kind of misunderstand legalization versus decriminalization of sex work. And legalization obviously seeks to be recognized under the government to have certain regulations and for people to be like contracted employees and all of these things. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in regulating labor in this way, and I don't believe in making a type of labor that is meant to be informal and for a lot of people to access when they are surviving and for a lot of different reasons to then be made more regulated or formal. So that is like my personal opinion on those movements and like people's personal wants towards that like have a lot to do with their own like class, race, etc. alignments. And if you're looking for like best practices around decriminalization, um, sorry, I'm gonna snap while I'm up here. Uh, the model for citizen sex workers is New Zealand, where they decriminalize sex work, uh, put it under labor regulations, but sex workers who work with each other up to say five working together don't need a license which allows the space for more informal, right? You can do both. You can be like, if you are a workplace that hires six or more sex workers, then we need you to have a license and we need you to know that you know labor laws. If it's you and four other sex workers all working together in the shared apartment, ah, go for it, right? You can actually do both. You can just allow it to continue to be an informal labor, which it 100% must continue to be. It will be. As soon as you, as soon as you force sex workers to legalize, create a class of criminal sex workers, right? Yeah. And that will be all the undocumented people, it will be homeless people, it will be people whose um, you know, gender marker doesn't miss, match their ID so they can't get a license. It's very dangerous, legalization is very dangerous. Um, for that reason, because sex work is supposed to be a safety net, it's a post, and that's what we need it to continue to be. Um, but I feel like there was something else, and there was a question around like, right, there's sex work under socialism, um, and then there was also like, so what do we do instead? which we were, I think, both happy to address. But, but I think, so in our experience, actually, um, many social work, uh, no, many sex workers actually is resisting the capitalism, right? So instead of like working in standard hour for other people, so there is like more fluid and more diversity. But the challenge is all the law make many activities become illegal, right? So that like actually for sex worker context, like uh, particularly uh, when there is the city or state less regulated, they can exist in more different form. The different form of work is designed by the people, right? So for example, even we say Toronto, the law is problematic, Canada is problematic. But when I first moved to Canada, is sex work is uh, like um, win the constitution challenge. Technically, the criminal law is not being enforced at that moment. So that like the people can decide I work for myself or I have someone to answer the phone for me, I'm willing to pay something, or two people work together. And some people, they may decide, uh, because in Toronto, the license 
policy, the workers also find a way to resist so they, they are more easy to open the business. So then they can decide whether I want to work indoor to provide full self-service or I want to do massage then to see all the clients handsome or I want more tips that I can like have variety of service and then they can have more bargaining power. So that you see actually if we have the environment then the people decide maybe few people can work together or some people they may have the, the boss before and then they think oh instead of some people take my money you know share my profit that I can open my own business and then they can also find the client to help to then to book the hotel you know that to to uh, rent the room but all this thing become illegal they can't do it anymore so that's create the the, the thing is when people do this work that the risk is attached to it that some people want to make profit more and you are more difficult. So for example, before I do advertisement so that I can find a friend, you know, no English help me to draft it, but now your friend help you to draft the advertisement is illegal, right? So that is like all make, take away your power, you know, and I think now the Canada model is assume everyone running the co-op is not illegal. But then why only the sex work have this socialist model and not all other kind of like industry, right? So I think I think for us now, but we what we really see and many people use sex work to resist many kind of uh, oppression under the capitalist system, right? Because your race, because you don't know English, you you must work in certain working class. But actually doing sex work, as Chanel said, that actually can have better income, they can have better social network that to have the uh, economic asset they, they can, you know, like to to get more 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 social capital also in in in, in the way, you know, in, in now, now the current society that they they can better support system and 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 instead of just like um stay in the very isolated situation. So, yeah. yeah, I want to. I want to kind of try to answer both of the like the first and, and one of the last questions, which is like one of the questions is why is this pitch so effective? So I want to bring up. Yeah. So this is a anti-trafficking organization in Toronto, and I want to show you what it looks like. And so the last question was like, is there a parallel between the more right-wing uh, narrative around anti-trafficking and the modern one? And there is, but basically there's sort of two different versions of it. And they use this, so this is an anti-trafficking organization that you could never tell promotes criminalization, right? So uh, Aura Freedom is a grassroots organization, notice all the keywords, working in Canada and internationally to end violence against women and human trafficking through advocacy and, or, and education. It exactly mirrors a social justice organization. That's why I kind of refer to like the, the Frederick Douglass bill as like a zombie bill. They occupy it from the inside and exactly parrot the language, the imagery. Now those images, right, they'll show images on um, the more like the fake leftist ones of women of color to be like, we have an anti-racist analysis. This is who's most harmed by sex trafficking. Actually, that's who's most criminalized by anti-trafficking law and is therefore most likely to be harmed. Those are the victims they're creating. Um, and so yes, that sounds very different, of course, than what you're gonna hear from QAnon or what you're gonna hear from Donald Trump. But guess what? When those bills and policies get proposed, 
That's why you have the progressives and the leftists voting to support bills that have come from Republicans, because this is what they've been told it means. So they might talk very differently from each other, but the right will get all of the progressives, leftists, and liberals to still vote in favor of their policies, or to just not notice them as they pass. So that's why the pitch is so effective, and that is why it is so difficult for us to push back. Because then we look like we're saying, oh yeah, no, we, we love trafficking. And like, you know, we love gender-based violence. But that's the trouble that all abolitionists have. We have the same problem, where we get called, uh, specifically the slurs that are used against sex work organizers, we refer to as the pimp lobby. Just be with the racism of that for a minute. Right, and and that's how, you know, and so when someone's uh, you know there was a question at the beginning like these are the pol you know the question around the politics who you've seen pushing these politics and then often the sex workers rights movement is uh, white women led often and it has been uh, very disconnected from racial justice movements and that's why we haven't seen this and I think that is absolutely why this fake abolitionist fake social justice movement has been able to develop the enormous power that it has. Um, because there hasn't been that uh, understanding of criminalization specifically. You have this whole sex workers rights movement being like, we hate criminalization. Well, what's criminalization? It's white supremacy. Just not really understanding the deep level of connection between the two. I'm going to pause now. Um, can I? What I want to add on to like, what Chanel says is that um, with the person who asked this question around like sort of how you talk to people about this. We already acknowledge this, and you acknowledge this, right? That even if we're talking about gender-based violence, even if you think that sex work is gender-based violence, which I don't, but like if you do believe that, right? Policing and border control and all of these things will never solve for gender-based violence. It is gender-based violence itself, right? We know that people, especially like women of color and other marginalized people, marginalized genders of color are like systemically assaulted within the policing and prison systems. We know that they like experience more gender-based violence. Being criminalized puts you at greater risk for gender-based violence. So even if you believe that, it will never be the answer, right? Which I don't personally believe that. And it's also why I don't tend to like read through questions about like what sex work like looks like, like post capitalism and all of these things, because I can't really answer that question for you. I can like tell you what I believe. Um, and the other part of it is that I actually don't think that the QAnon and like all right people are all that different, like narrative wise, to the folks who are more progressive who push anti-trafficking. Because if you really look at those folks, right? Like if you look at the like communist, socialist, like abolitionist groups who like veer up to be more progressive but are anti-trafficking and also like work with the police, um, they are very moralizing, right? Like people bring this up, that it is very moralizing and they use the same narrative and that type, to answer the question of like why this is like, why people kind of like fall for this or why it is like so alluring is that that type of moralism and fear mongering is very effective. When you tell people, oh my gosh, we have to protect the children, we have to protect these people, it is very alluring no matter what side you're getting it from. But really the arguments are all the same. Like if you look at people who are like not just anti-sex work but broadly also anti-sex, 
facts within like leftist and progressive movements, the arguments are exactly the same. The only difference is they tend to like kind of arc it in being like, oh, well, like if this is a byproduct of the evils of capitalism and white supremacy, then we should get rid of it immediately. say and I think now we really see how the anti-trafficking industry expanding and hiding policing in so many ways and what you mentioned about education is one of the examples and the policing is not only by police but by education system health professional like a social welfare system so that for example Ontario um, now all the students need to learn about human trafficking when they eliminate the like uh, education program of LGBTQ, right? So that like what they talk about human trafficking actually is in like reintroduce the moralistic idea, you know, like the religion idea and because those organizations are tied with religion group or religion background about morality, you know, like uh, how they see sexuality one to one, you know, heterosexual, you know, like that they bring in all this conservative moralistic idea of sex and sexuality, but they package it as a human rights, right? They package it as a protect of children, like you say, and also uh, violence against women. And the other thing, the policing, we see like, for example, before we came, Pew Region just got 21 million for police. And then they hide the policing is because then they don't go by themselves, they go with social worker. And so that what our worker experience, the police come in, she was not allowed to take wear her clothes, she was being handcuffed and the police say, are you okay, are you safe? And goes to her, and then she said, before you came, I safe, I was safe. They broke to her locked door and then locked her up. And she was not allowed to touch anything before answering all the questions. She need to give all the phone number, you know, they seize her phone and take all her personal information belongings and then when 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 she was released the handbrake the social worker come what can i help to help you and give her a very shitty phone and all her money seventy thousand dollars being seized by the police and so that but then when we see the newspaper say oh this victim is being rescued because the many migrants now in the legal system they need to forced to identify themselves as sex worker, uh, as, as traffic victim in order to not be charged or in order to assess different kind of service. Then they also produce the demand of the... Another example is Canadian Center of Human Anti-Human Trafficking. They pose as the hotline that you can, you know, call them that they can do referral. But when you see the funding, who fund that public safety, what they do is collect the data from government. And what they do is, um, I guess they just receive a call, someone say, I'm really concerned about the worker in massage parlor. She has very sad eyes, so I have the red flag, you know, and she do her work so hard, she forced to work because she need to pay mortgage. I think in the world is not being forced to work, right? So, but then they like she call and then he called the hotline what he can do. But the data of the hotline is being used, for example, this center is used to lobby the city of Toronto to shut down all the Asian massage parlor. So that the policing is so powerful now, all the health professionals, I think in US many cities, the hairdresser need to know how to identify traffic victim. And then the policing is everywhere and make you even cannot escape and people feel like this is the pathway system when put people in the prison but we see how the childcare institution how indigenous community like um, 
children being taken away, racialized people being taken away as the name of protection. We always need to ask why so many people think brothel is safer than a childcare facility. This is the the thing we need to think instead of like how we can surveillance and try to find a way to catch this, to save this this these people, the girls, to put it back to the you know, foster care system and you know, that is so much uh, oppression. And I think like us we have so many things on to say and so this is why we want to write a book and so that we really hope that we can still continue our connected and work together. And what about you said. Yeah, there's any questions that are I think most of them but yeah, I'm suggesting to our co-panelists that we do the like, okay, so if the anti-trafficking industry is trash, I think everyone's on board. Like, we, I think we really came to convey that memo. I think, I think we did. Um, and I'm super jazzed about this conversation. But there was a question. I, I feel like one of the things was like, okay, so if that's trash, then what? What do we do? Like, if the anti-trafficking industry just like is, if the anti-trafficking industry, which is policing, and policing isn't going to do it, then what? And um, I think we know the answer, right? So that why migrant is being oppressed is because they don't have immigration status, right? So that's why we fight for status for all. Why do people need to force to work because of economic reason? Because we don't have good income support, we don't have housing system. And we all know about that. That is what the government want, don't want to do it. But I think the challenge is how we have the call together is because, for example, when Butterfly asked people to sign our statement, we have the the call for status for all. We have the call of full decolonization of sex work. We have the call for end policing. There is so many different type of racial justice organization. They feel uncomfortable of the sex worker piece. We have the LGBT community. They support the sex worker right, but they don't support the status for all. So then why the Asian and migrant sex worker and also migrant sex worker in general facing so much oppression is because we can't have the allyship with all the oppression we face. And so that as the anti-trafficking movement is very successful to divide us, they are successful to call everyone in. I am anti-Asian racism. I don't want women being forced to work in sex industry. They call in racial justice organization. They help the non-status people to get the status by getting, giving them a temporary visa as traffic victim. They call in the racial justice organization, feel that the migrant being oppressed, they need to get the status. So I think this is from my perspective, but we also want to hear from you guys, like that, how we can, you know, continues, you know, to end all kind of oppression, and, and and I think we, many of us know the answer, but the how to to really build the solidarity, in, and then what you can do and help us in your sector to to bring this intersection, lens oppression, and also how to make the change together. I think this. Is It's over to you. Any final words, any final thoughts you'd like to share? I mean, Aline covered it, really. Like, that is essentially what I feel about it. I do think that if we, if people were to ask, and I say this a lot nowadays, when people ask, like, what are the things that you can, like, tangibly do, like, tomorrow, is that 
really, there are sex workers everywhere, right? Which I even think that some people kind of touch on in their questions, that like they didn't know that people were here, they didn't know that people were working in this industry, or people of like certain races were here in like certain areas. They're everywhere. This is the nature of migration. This is the nature of sex work. Like of that, like you know a sex worker, even if you think that you don't. And I think that there, you need to push against like a lot of these things on a regular basis, and even in like ways that you would not expect, and I've said this pretty recently in other panels, is that, for example, here in New York, they are pushing to make a lot of things digital, including payment. So like you can no longer buy a Metro card, you have to use the digital payment pass to like get onto the subway. And that is also very bad for sex workers. It's bad for anybody who frequents in cash. It's bad for poor people, right? Um, and people don't realize that a lot of those things are also meant to limit people who are undocumented, are meant to limit people who work in informal labor and anybody like that. But like the more you like push to like rely on like digital banking and like banking period, a lot of people actually do not have a bank account. A lot of people don't have a debit card. Again, if you're not a citizen, if you're not, um, if you're not like frequenting in that kind of money, then you're like limited in those factors. And every single day, in every part of our lives, in every city across the United States, in Canada as well, they are pushing for these things to try and find ways to criminalize people, right? They're not going to say it to your face that that is what they're doing, which again is like a part of the larger narrative around like how people who are undocumented, people who are sex workers, people of color, um, LGBTQ people are police, is that they're not going to come out and say that, right? They're going to say, oh, we're trying to protect people. Oh, we're trying to do this. Oh, we're like, we're trying to like limit like people working on licensed massage, right? They're not coming out and being like, we are going to be arresting every sex worker. We are going to be racially profiling people. We're going to be profiling trans people in the street. No, they don't say that. They say, we are going to switch all of the New York City subways to Omni. <laughs> if you want to stay in touch with us, we created, we really did create a little QR code so that you can um, just like get on the list and then we will continue to notify folks about our upcoming work because we really uh, are writing and intending for this book to be an organizing tool uh, and we want to build with folks. And um, Thank you so much to Harsha. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.